This talk is called The Paradox of Solitude. And I'll start with a quotation that is attributed to the French novelist Honoré de Balzac, um, but actually it was apparently said by an obscure theologian of the same name <laughs> some centuries earlier. Um, Solitude, this guy said, is a beautiful thing, but you need someone to tell that solitude is a beautiful thing. <laughs> and that, to me, catches it rather well. That all of this talk about solitude is all very well, but somehow its value and its meaning require our ability to, uh, to say that, to share our appreciation, let's say, of meditation, of sitting quietly, doing very little. And when we find ourselves, say, sitting quietly here in silence, um, we are still, nonetheless, reflecting, uh, commenting to ourselves, and we're doing so in language. And language, by its very nature, is not our own. It's not some private um, discourse that only I understand. It's something we have, we have received from our society, from our culture, from the world in which we live. And so even in the most silent and remote place, we are embedded in something that is essentially social. Words, concepts, ideas. So we can never really uh, step outside of that. We can never extricate ourselves at that level from our participatory nature. And this is something that has um, puzzled me and intrigued me for many, many years. In fact, the very first book I wrote when I was in my mid-twenties was a book called Alone with Others that sought quite explicitly to examine this paradox. The paradox of being creatures who are simultaneously alone and with others. We've probably all had that those moments of, of self-awareness where we say to ourselves, but how do I know that what I see as red is what you see as red? How can I know for sure that the quality of my subjective perceptions of our shared world is anything like yours. Of course, we all know that we use the same words to denote the same things, 
In other words, we share a common frame of reference and language and so on. But the actual innermost subjective um, uh, experience, I can't get inside your mind or your brain to somehow check that your sense of red is the same as my sense of red. We can never do that. And there may be moments when that dawns on one for the first time where we become rather struck in an almost chilling way that we are profoundly alone in this world. And yet at the same time, as I've been saying, we are also embedded in our thinking, which is only intelligible because it has access to a shared set of codes and grammars and syntax and terms and words that are not ours, that belong to all of us. And our bodies too are not ours, they are the product of evolution, they are the gift of our parents, the cells of our parents. Um, on many, many levels we can see that our existence couldn't even be conceivable without the presence and the actions and the, and the, 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 the physical materials of other people. So we're simultaneously alone and at the same time we are profoundly embedded and structured according to the relationships and the connections we have with others. Now we see this reflected and played out in the, um, some of the core values and uh, ideas uh, that we encounter in Buddhism. And also, of course, other religions. In fact, this idea of alone with others is a term or is a, is a polarity that um, I borrowed from the Protestant theologian Paul Tillich, who understood what, what, what he calls the ontological structure of being um, as structured according to certain polarities, freedom and uh, limitation was one, uh, aloneness and participation was another, and I forget the other. There are six of them. But in Buddhism, for example, we very often find the practices presented in terms of wisdom and compassion, for example. And underpinning that distinction, I would argue, is this fundamental existential structure of aloneness and participation. And when Buddhists began to think about what it meant to be awake, what it meant to be a Buddha, likewise, they thought of it very much in these terms. One of the um, ideas that I found most valuable in my Tibetan training was that uh, the Buddha, the person who is awake, let's say, has achieved what are called uh, two 
purposes or goals or meanings, artha in Sanskrit. One is what you could literally translate as um, meaning for oneself or fulfillment for oneself. And the other is meaning for others or fulfillment for others. So the Buddha, the awake person, has achieved a degree of inner fulfillment that is entirely his or her own. But at the same time, his or her existence has become fully or optimally meaning for others in the world as well. And it's this kind of balance, this equilibrium, that is considered to underpin uh, the idea of awakening itself. Awakening is not just some private, subjective experience that I and I alone have access to, and it's just something that goes on secretly within the depths of me somewhere. But awakening is just as much about the extent to which our existence um, participates in the lives of others. And so this boils down to, um, to notions like um, wisdom and compassion. That's probably the most famous one. So we try to find a practice that balances out these two fundamental dimensions of our humanity. So even on a retreat like this, where we're in silence, where we're committing ourselves to the discipline of meditation with our eyes closed, working with our inner life, as it were, we're also doing this and are supported in doing this by the communal framework of this group retreat and the presence of those who provide us with food and everything else that we need. So at one level, solitude um, is a bit of an illusion because existentially we can never really tease it apart from the fact that we are participatory creatures engaged in a shared world with others. This um, idea is, I think, very beautifully expressed in the, um, in the work that I've alluded to already of Shantideva, again, 8th century Indian uh, monk, poet, author of a book called A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, I already quoted a couple of things he said about solitude, and I'll repeat them. He's the one who said, Befriending no one, begrudging no one, my body dwells in solitude. I am already counted as a dead man. No mourners will be at my grave. So this is a guy who has decided um, at this particular point in his narrative, in the structure of this text, that he's now going to go off and practice. And he goes off into a remote 
part of the countryside and the hills and the forests and so on and really tries his utmost to cut himself off from everybody else. And he says, with bodily and mental solitude, not just bodily solitude, but mental solitude as well, nothing can distract me. I should let go of the world and banish chattering thoughts. This is Shantideva. But then something very strange happens in the course of the same chapter of the book, chapter 8, if you want to look it up. First half of the chapter is extolling the virtues of solitude in order that he can meditate and then eventually about verse 90 he starts engaging in this long solitary retreat and um, what happens? His attention then returns to the very world that he has been at such pains to renounce. It's as though it's only when his mind has really quietened down, when he's totally withdrawn himself from all commerce with others, that an insight dawns on him. And that insight is that there's nothing special about him at all. He's no different from anybody else. And he expresses this in an image that's quite well known. Um, he realizes that um, he is just one cell within a vast, complex organism, uh, which is life itself. He thinks of um, all beings, all living beings, as being... Um, participants in this, uh, this symbiotic body, he calls it. This great big body. We're all little cells in this body, all mutually, as it were, contributing to the possibility of each, everybody else's life. And the image he uses uh, to express this, he says it's like the relationship between the hand and the foot. If my foot is in pain, even though my hand is perfectly okay, my hand will spontaneously, without a second thought, reach out to assuage the pain of the foot. It doesn't even have to think about it. It doesn't say, well, I'm okay. I'll let the foot suffer. <laughs> Who cares about the foot? As long as there's no pain in my hand. Of course, that's absurd. And... This is a metaphor that I feel expresses very beautifully, really. Um, the idea that, that compassion, let's say, at its most authentic and true, does not require um, some kind of ramped up motivation to be compassionate. Uh, genuine compassion is as spontaneous and natural and as uncontrived as the hand reaching out to the foot. So Shantideva's solitude 
leads him, leads him into this uh, contemplation uh, where he's utterly alone, dead to the world. And yet it, re- it seems as though it almost requires that removal in order for him to fully appreciate the extent to which he is a part of a body of life that is infinitely greater than him, without which he could not exist. He says, I should dispel the misery of others because it is pain, just like my own. And I should help them because they are sentient creatures, just like me. This is sometimes called the the exchange of self and others. Um, It's a a recognition that the reason that, if there needs to be a reason, the rationale for caring for others is because they are just like you. There's really no essential difference. Um, And this, of course, is exactly the same insight that underpins the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to yourself. We find the same also in the Gospels. We find Jesus going off into the desert for 40 days uh, as a very crucial turning point in his own um, vocation or his own life of service and teaching and so on. You have to somehow remove yourself in order to get the clarity, the insight that paradoxically perhaps grounds you in a far deeper sense of your connectedness to everything else that lives. And Shantideva concludes that when I live in this way, he says, no conceit arises. It is like feeding myself. I hope for nothing in return. In other words, if I could really see and experience myself as a cell within a vaster organism of the body of life, then that perspective um, would lead to a morality, a caring, um, that wouldn't give rise to any conceit. In other words, I wouldn't have the idea, hey, I'm doing something really good here, I'm really helping this person out. And very often in the background, there's another little voice that's saying, and I hope somebody notices. I hope that uh, this is being uh, appreciated, uh, my going out of my way like this. In other words, very often our, 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 our generous and our compassionate actions betray, and we can see this in our thoughts, a kind of self-interest. It's not really the kind of, let's say, the spontaneous response a mother might have to her child or a hand to its foot. But the ideal for Shantideva 
is to is to reach that degree of empathetic um, identity, which is achieved in this solitary contemplation, and to bring that back into the um, relationships he has uh, with others. So we could therefore argue that the practice of solitude is about learning how to build and, and, and create a new relationship both with oneself and with the world at the same time. So solitude might look like a withdrawal, a retreat, a, a cutting off of oneself, but arguably it's a necessary precondition for our ability to uh, be fully in the world, fully with the suffering of others. And again, we see this same tension, the same paradox, when we look at two of the most famous um, utterances of, of Gautama, of the Buddha. Uh, we have this uh, oft-quoted text which occurs shortly before he dies where he says you should be islands to yourselves uh, you should live as islands to yourselves uh, with no other refuge that yourself your utter yourself is your refuge and to live with the dharma as an island with no other refuge with the dharma as your refuge and I think what that's pointing to it's slightly ambiguous because you it says you that's only yourself is the refuge only the dharma is a refuge but you can't have two only refuges uh, so what i think it must point to is that when the chips are down the only thing you can in a sense find uh, security or solace in is the dharma the teaching, the practice, however we define that difficult term, the degree to which that has been integrated into the fabric of your own life. Okay, so we first, and this would seem very much like a very unambiguous affirmation of the importance of solitude. You couldn't say it much more strongly than that, be an island. It sometimes is translated as be a lamp. Uh, and the reason that you get those two translations is because in Pali, the word for island and the word for lamp are the same, deeper. Um, <clears throat> it's like the bark of a tree and the bark of a dog. In other words, they're the same word, but they mean different things. The Sanskrit texts the fragments that have survived suggest that it's probably meant in the sense here of island. So that's what I would say. But either way, you could play with both and possibly the Buddha was actually quite aware of that, uh, of that ambiguity. Could have meant both. So on the one hand, you have that, uh, that you know, rather clear encouragement to cultivate your solitude and then you get another passage which is again repeated through the suttas um, 
which says something quite different, which says, go forth into the world for the welfare of the many, for the benefit of the many, and let no two of you follow the same path. So here we have a teaching that is encouraging um, an engagement with the world um, without it being somehow the activity of a group of monks or nuns or and it, it, you go forth into the world by yourself but the point here now is that your life is one in which you are engaging connecting working for the welfare of others so here you have these two injunctions i would argue both equally important. One, the injunction to be an island, and the other, an injunction to be, to go, go forth into the world, where you realize, as John Donne put it, no man is an island from our culture. And I think Shantideva would say the same, same, same thing. No, no person is an island. And yet, when we talk of solitude, when we think of that dimension of ourselves that is irrevocably alone, it feels very much as though we're an island. So we're working here in this practice in the broader sense with this paradox, we might put it. Let's look at some, um, some more contemporary voices who I think are pointing to something similar. Um, this is um, a quote from the American painter Agnes Martin. And she says, we have been very strenuously conditioned against solitude. To be alone is considered to be a grievous and dangerous condition. I suggest that people who like to be alone who walk alone will perhaps be serious workers in the field of the arts. And I think what she's saying is that we live in a society today where solitude can almost be seen as somehow threatening because to be solitary, to be in solitude in this way is, is, is a, the very act, the very act of withdrawal can be read as a kind of rejection of what common sense or social agreement um, insists upon. You're turning your back, as it were, on the conventions and the agreements and the protocols that hold society together. You withdraw. And I think a lot of subliminal and less subliminal um, uh, signs, uh, things that are said or way characters are depicted in movies and novels and so on, um, tend to have difficulty representing solitude in a positive way. There's something potentially undermining about it. And so many people whose lives 
um, have challenged the norms of their day, starting with the Buddha, Christ, Muhammad also, going away from Mecca into his cave. It's as though you somehow need to retreat and experience the depths of your solitude in order that you can come back to the world, often with a, a very radical critique of much of what it stands for. And although in the time of the Buddha and during the Christian Middle Ages and so on, this would have been a role assumed by the wandering friar, uh, the monk or the nun, um, the ascetic, the hermit, the, uh, the anchorite. I think in modern society, in contemporary society, I think that role is played far less by such figures who in many ways are almost a dying race. But I feel the people who embody that function now are often writers and poets and painters and sculptors composers, artists. Uh, and the, the, especially when one sets out on a career as an artist, and I can see this very much in the life of my brother, for example, and uh, many of uh, others I know of my own generation, is that to, to, to choose to live as an artist is effectively to take a risk that you might actually end up impoverished and ignored and uh, as basically a complete failure. And there is a period in many artists' lives of being desperately alone, unacknowledged, unappreciated, and yet your commitment to your artistic vision is strong enough to keep you going. Many, of course, do not continue and end up usually teaching art at art schools <laughs> or working in graphic design or something. <laughs> so the, the, to me, the artist, and I think someone like Agnes Martin, if you don't know her work, you, you, you might enjoy it. Very, very, very minimalist lines on paper very often. But she, like others, like Georgia O'Keeffe, uh, went off into New Mexico, to Taos, and the artistic communities around there. It's where D.H. Lawrence ended up as well. So you have these, this is a high desert in the middle of nowhere in America. It's very much, in another time, would have been where there would have been remote monasteries and hermit cells. So I very much like to think of the artist as the latter-day um, hermit. But not in a kind of idealistic way. They spend the whole time just tucked away in a studio in Taos. But they need that withdrawal and that solitude in order to refine and develop and, 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 and in a sense, realize their art. And art, of course, is something that's only meaningful if it is shown, if it's exhibited, if it's shared. So again, this same paradox. Going into solitude in order to pr produce something, the meaning and value of which is only affirmed by others. Another quote that I found um, 
which is very similar. This is from Ingmar Bergman, the Swedish film director. And um, he would write the screenplays for his movies by going off to a remote island called Faro. And he used to keep a, a journal. And in one of these entries he says, Here in my solitude I have the feeling that I contain too much humanity. It's, it's very much the same point. Shantideva. It could almost be Shantideva. I'm sure he had no idea who Shantideva was. But what I think both of these figures who are separated by hundreds of years in time from completely different cultures, they come to recognize very much the same truth. That in your solitude, you find yourself filled with humanity, in Bergman's words. And we could also think of um, political figures. Um, this is Nelson Mandela, someone who also had quite a long experience of solitude, not chosen. And this is what Mandela said. He said, um, It is never my custom to use words lightly. If 27 years in prison have done anything to us, it was to use the silence of solitude to make us understand how precious words are and how real speech sorry I'm sorry and how real speech is in its impact on the way people live and die I mean, since I've been interested in the idea of solitude, I, I keep seeing it everywhere. And all, all of these figures, I would have never have associated any of these figures with solitude. And yet, not only did they experience solitude, they have something, I think, very, very insightful to say about it. So for Mandela, he recognizes that this silence of solitude um, is what might be necessary for us to really value how precious language and words are and what power words can have in transforming the way people live and die, as he puts it. So again, you can't separate the two. You can be locked up for 27 years on Robben Island but in that incarceration, you rediscover something essential about language, which as we saw is this inescapable atmosphere that we breathe even when we're utterly alone. And the power of language to affect others. So Shantideva goes off into the forest, experiences this participation or participation mystique, this mystical participation with the rest of life. And he writes a poem, which we're still reading and thinking about today. Agnes Martin paints her pictures. Bergman makes his movies. Nelson Mandela ends apartheid. 
all of them are recognizing the role of solitude as somehow essential to the work that they then go on to do. And since this is a Zen retreat, I guess I have to find an example from Zen. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's a very good one. <laughs> and this is um, called the Ten Ox Herding Pictures. Uh, I suspect many of you are familiar with these. I'm not going to go through each one in detail. But basically, it's a series of brush paintings, usually, in Korea. When you go into many of the monasteries, you see the ox herding pictures painted around the, um, the walls of temples. It's a very common design. Obviously, ten pictures. They start with a young ox herder uh, looking for his ox that has wandered off, and so he goes into the forest. Then he sees the footprints of the ox, and then he sees the ox. Then he manages to catch the ox, and he manages to sit on the ox, and eventually he tames the ox. And the ox being a metaphor for the mind our unruly mind that, as you might have noticed, tends to wander off. But when he has mastered the mind, the ox, we then have a couple of pictures in which um, first there is, I think it's no man, no ox. There's just the natural world, just the landscape. It's up in the hills, as usual. In other words, you know, there is a kind of a dissolution, in a way, of difference between himself and his mind. And then the next image is just one of those enzos, just a circle, which symbolizes emptiness. But the last picture, after this almost you know, utter dissolution into the insight into the nature of life. The final picture is called Returning to the Marketplace with Bliss Bestowing Hands. So in other words, this, this cycle again depicts the same process that we've now seen in many other instances, Buddhist and other, that here we have quite explicitly in the, as a way of presenting son or Zen meditation the need to somehow go deeply within but in order to be able to engage with the world. Exactly the same story. And I'd like to end with... Um, with some words from Zhuangzi, uh, or Zhuangzi is how it's often written now in Binyin. Zhuangzi was a uh, Taoist, or what we now call a Taoist um, uh, thinker, writer, practitioner, philosopher really, who was probably roughly contemporary with the Buddha. Um, in other words, 4th, 5th century BC, but in China 
absolutely no connection to Indian thought. And he too plays on exactly this same tension. He sums this up, I think, quite succinctly in the phrase, which is not, it's more of an injunction really than a simple comment. He says, don't go in and hide, don't come out and shine, stand stock still in the middle. So you can see he's working on exactly the same polarity, inwardness or outwardness, aloneness or togetherness. And he sees that if you, if, if you tend too much in either direction, you're probably missing something. You can become very introverted, very cut off, very removed, very cold perhaps, or you can become very extrovert, very, very outrageous, very present in the world, but perhaps also rather superficial, rather... Um, concerned with appearance and with impressions you make by shining, as it were. And his advice is that you stand stock still in the middle. And that's very close, although, again, it has no, uh, it's not in any way derived from Buddhist thought, but this is quite clearly the middle way or the central point. So the middle way we can perhaps now understand as the middle way between excessive introversion and excessive extroversion, or excessive withdrawal on the one hand and a kind of excessive busyness in the world on the other. It's not one, it's not the other, it's somehow finding a way of integrating the two and as Chuangzi says, standing stock still in the middle. He then um, fleshes this out with lots of examples. And I'll read you this paragraph. It's quite long, but I think it's, 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 worth, um, it's worth reading. And he's talking about the great man, the great person. Therefore, the great person in his actions will not harm others but he makes no show of benevolence or charity. He will not move for the sake of profit, but he does not despise the porter at the gate. He will not wrangle for goods or wealth, but makes no show of refusing or relinquishing them. He will not enlist the help of others in his work, but he makes no show of being self-supporting. And he does not despise the greedy and the base. His actions differ from those of the mob, but he makes no show of uniqueness or eccentricity. He is content to stay behind with the crowd, but he does not despise those who run forward to flatter and fawn. 
all the titles and stipends of the age are not enough to stir him to exertion. All its penalties and censures are not enough to make him feel shame. He knows that no line can be drawn between right and wrong. No border can be fixed between great and small. Uh, all of those quotes are from a text called The Inner Chapters, uh, which is, this is the translation of Burton Watson. Um, I'm going to put up a list at the end of the retreat of the books I've quoted from. Well, that brings us to the end. Um, are there any comments or questions? Oh, could someone actually put on the lights? It's going to, we're going to not be able to see each other shortly. Yes, Sean. Yeah, that's right. I, I, um, yeah, I'm going to repeat the question so it's recorded. Uh, it seems as though the Buddha himself went through a similar process. He retreats to solitude and then only when he's, in a sense, gained his insight is he then moved to engage with the world. And um, yeah, I, I, I could, of course, have mentioned that too. That would, again, follow the same pattern. Absolutely. Absolutely. But of course, I think, well, it's, in a sense, the question for each of us, and this is the question that I keep asking for myself, is, you know, to what extent does my own life, uh, in a way, uh, uh, play out within these polarities? And how willing am I to really risk solitude, uh, if that's what it takes to find a fulfillment uh, in the world with others. Something over here? Yes. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, it is quite striking how this sequence plays itself out in so many different contexts in different cultures at different times that suggests that there's something kind of archetypal about it. But at the same time, um, I started this presentation by emphasizing how both of these dimensions are with us all the time, in every moment. Um, even in our solitude, we are with others. Even when we're with others, we're alone. So in some ways, um, we can see this, I think, in, in a quite useful sense as something that defines the arc of a life over time, over years. But if we take the example, say, of um, Bergman, you know, he will go off to his island, write his screenplay, come back, make his movie, and then he'll go out to his island again and write a screenplay. So clearly there's something, that there's a back and a forth going on here. It's not just a single trajectory. Um, and I think we might even be able to see that in the course of a day. 
We have moments in our day when we, we step back, we, we, we need a bit of quiet, we need a bit, a bit of repose, we really feel a great relief in being able to sit down in our armchair and um, close our eyes and just sort of come back to ourselves. And other moments in our life in the same day when we've been totally engaged with others. And there's, it's this kind of um, back and forth, this uh, exchange that characterizes, uh, you know, even sh- very short spans of time. Um, so I think it's helpful, I found it helpful to, to acknowledge that these two dimensions are somehow requiring attention at each moment in our lives. And we need to be, I think, aware of how at times we might get, in a sense, overly drawn into one side and neglect the needs of the other, in which case maybe some kind of rebalancing is needed. But I think each of us will have to find our own particular way in which we negotiate this. Yes, very end at the back there. Well, again, if I think back, for example, to my mother, who I who died a few years ago, and I was with her a lot. Well, not not as much, perhaps, as I could have been. Uh, or my mother-in-law, with whom we live now, who's ninety. Um, I think for elderly people, solitude is, in our society at least, something that is, is, is very, very unattractive. And in fact, the thing my mother used to complain about the most, even though she was in a home with lots of other people and lots of people attending to her, it was loneliness. The loneliness of the aging is, 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 is awful. And as you get older, then, you know, necessarily your friends and the people older than you, they're already dead. And you find yourself in in an increasingly isolated, lonely state. And in the case both of my mother and my mother-in-law, neither of them have given any time in their lives to actually uh, developing the skills to manage solitude. Um, and that I think it's probably too late when you're 95 to start you know, going on Vipassana retreats. <laughs> I think our society fails the elderly on this uh, in many ways. Um, uh, and I'm very, in, it, uh, there are a number of projects now that are, uh, I'm, I'm aware of where the, you know, the care for the aging in terms of what meditation, mindfulness, etc. might bring, are being explored. Um, and I think that's very important. I remember my mother saying, you know, she said, oh, I wish I'd... I mean, she, she was very dismissive of going off to India, being a monk, meditating. She thought this was really ridiculous. But um, by the end of her life, she began to realize that actually it might, it might have something to it. And she did, in fact, say, I remember a number of times, she said, well... You know, dear, maybe I should have learned to meditate when I was younger. (laughs) 
So it's, um, it's true, aging brings us into solitude for sure, but a solitude that is often characterized by loneliness. Loneliness, as I said, I think at the beginning is, um, uh, is um, it's a state of being alone, but in which you very you have, uh, you're acutely uh, aware of being cut off from others, of being disconnected. The very opposite of the connectedness that Shantideva finds, for example. And of course, loneliness is an, is, is great suffering. And I think what we might find through these kinds of practices on retreat is a way to is to accept and to appreciate and to even enjoy solitude, rather than suffering from the awful kinds of loneliness that are pervasive in our society, particularly for the elderly. Yeah, Darius. I wonder what this has to do with uh, temperament. Uh huh. Supposed to be on somewhere on the spectrum between between Who don't feel what? Well, if, if solitude is a necessary part of the economy, yeah, I think you're right. I, I've, I've thought about this quite a lot too, and I'm pretty sure that most people in this room are not raging extroverts. But you never know. It's. Um, it's not maybe quite as clear-cut as one might at first think, but certainly meditation and going on retreat and being silent is certainly going to appeal to people who have a natural inclination that way. That's kind of self-evident. Um, but again, if you go back to Jung, who's the person who came up with this model, um, he recognizes that in order to achieve what he calls individuation as a self, these, these different polarities, and there are several in Jung's typology, introversion, extroversion, uh, but also his typology of thinking, feeling, sensation, intuition, uh, and superior function, inferior function, animus, animal, conscious, unconscious. That that model is presented as, as it were, the field of of, of, of therapeutic work, um, and the goal is to is to balance it out. It's to is to achieve a degree of uh, of integration of these different elements, and from Jung's point of view, the uh, the failure to become individuated, which is his way of saying to become to realize your full potential as a human being is because there are imbalances and distortions within, within that structure. So although you might be temperamentally extrovert, if you want to work on yourself in any way, then you have to start paying more attention to your inner life and vice versa. Jung would have always sought to um, encourage 
uh, people to not just go with their strengths, as it were, but actually to work on those areas that they are not temperamentally inclined to pursue. Uh, and I found that I've, I did Jungian analysis when I was a young Tibetan monk. And I must say that model of the psyche and that typology, I found very helpful uh, in sort of giving a, a, sort of, a sort of more contemporary psychological map or frame for doing this kind of work. And I think that perhaps has to be maybe more clearly thought through in terms of contemporary Buddhist practice. Uh, it's quite common, like even in here in the Guy House world, um, you know, we do all this meditation, but that almost inevitably then brings up why aren't we out there, you know, saving the planet? Or, and, and so we've generated here at Guy House a, a number of initiatives to make, you know, make it very clear that our practice needs to extend towards in this, you know, in this particular instance, the environment, Plant, going off and doing retreats and planting trees or, or, or working with people who are disadvantaged, whatever it might be. So there's a, I think we, we, we constantly recognize the need for this sort of integration and balance. Um, but I'm not sure it's, we've completely, we, we've yet realized a, a discourse or a language or a presentation that has somehow, you know, holds that uh, as well as it could. I think there is a tendency in Buddhism uh, to model the practice on the ideal of the of the monastic, which is again a, a really an archetype of solitude, really, uh, and that's become that's still a very predominant uh, image that. Uh, the ideal practitioner is somehow like a monk. And monk, of course, comes from the Greek monos, alone. Uh, and so there is, I think, uh, a struggle within the wider Buddhist, uh, contemporary Buddhist world uh, to somehow, in a way, look for more suitable models other than those that we inherit from Indian asceticism, Indian, the Indian renun renunciant tradition. But actually, going back to your point, Marie, it reminds me. In the classical Indian model of life, the four stages of life, you do have the idea of the sannyasin, that after a person has raised a family and uh, lived their life in the world, then they, you know, they basically put on a robe and pick up a pot and go off and live uh, as sannyasins, as sadhus. Uh, which I think is perhaps a way of, in a way, consciously living out that solitary dimension of your life in your later years. Uh, I find that model very be be really rather be beautiful, actually. Very different from the old, the old folks' home. You know, lot of, put, put, put them away there. <laughs> yes. Uh -huh. And to come back and then to make contact again. Uh -huh. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the question has to do with uh, the need perhaps to have a strong self before you embark upon, let's say, a radical practice of solitude. And I completely agree. And I think one of the reasons that uh, Buddhism has become associated with this idea that there is no self. But actually the Buddha never said that. Uh, there's, um, I, I think again the emphasis on no self reveals the bias of the monastic ideal. Somehow disappearing, eliminating yourself. Just, and, and a lot and a whole strain of thought in Buddhist uh, philosophy has taken the idea of anatta, which is not self, it's not no self, it's a very, very different idea, uh, and it's turned it into an ontology of absence. There is no self. There's just physical and mental processes, but there's, there's no one there. And this, to me, is a... If you take the self out in that hyper-literalistic way, um, not only, I think, are you saying something largely absurd, but you're actually undermining the foundations of any real moral or ethical life. You can't... Uh, ethics requires very centrally the need for self and other. And without self and other, there is no relationship possible. So, unfortunately, Buddhism, I think, has been has largely misrepresented its own original teachings by this metaphysics of no self. And the sooner that gets swept away, the better. Uh, well, actually, again, this dis there's no way of distinguishing in classical Indian languages between self and ego. Um, I mean, ego is just the Latin word for I, really. And it's been turned into a bit of a demon in our current speaking. Um, so I'm not too interested in getting into that. But, but I think certainly it's the case that all of these disciplines and these practices are about strengthening your sense of what your life is for, uh, motivation, um, having a clear sense of vision, um, engaging in speech and action, livelihood, all of these things. You, cannot, you couldn't possibly do those unless you had, an in, to some degree, an integrated sense of who you are. Uh, I think this is all a bit of a red herring, this non-self business. Um, and uh, the Buddha uses the word self uh, perfectly non-problematically. In fact, that verse I cited, be an island to yourself. The word self is atman, arta, self. The arta is your refuge. The self is your refuge. So clearly, it, it, he's not saying that it doesn't exist. It's, it's, it's utterly central to uh, any kind of meaningful human life. Uh, certainly you don't want to sort of exaggerate it into something that you think of as existing in some separate, permanent kind of space. You need to relativize it somewhat, 
but in order, therefore, that you can become, as it were, a kind of a work in progress rather than entertaining a conceit that you are this permanent thing called me. So yes, I think when you take away all of that rather technical language, uh, this is a practice about creating uh, and developing uh, a sane, a transparent and a committed sense of self. Let's stop there. Oh, we're running out of time. One quick question. Well, it's not a question. Okay. A confession. Okay, so you are a latter-day sannyasin. <laughs> well, I wish you all the very best in that. No, well, we have other ways of doing that now. Um, good. I think that's an interesting point to end on. Uh,